From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite and this is the UAE Tech Podcast Expo Edition, a celebration of how technology is reshaping culture, economics and governance for the 21st century, brought to you by Albawaba Business. If you're interested in sponsoring the UAE Tech Podcast, tune in at the end of this episode for more information. This episode was recorded with the generous support of the podcast studio at the Rove Hotel in downtown Dubai. The metaverse, in my definition, I use something that's a little bit different, um, uh, maybe because I'm a little bit of a veteran of these things and I built several AR and VR applications that were not connected to Ethereum or digital assets and, and kind of demoed in different kind of categories including angel investing in that world. And what I think of it is in some ways a bridge into the unseen world and that there's multiple tracks. And, you know, one of them is the digital asset side, but another one is the kind of AR, VR kind of hardware. How do we experience these things side? And another one is the kind of brain chemistry, you know, different kind of like neurochemistry related research, et cetera, kind of things that we can use to alter our state of consciousness. Um, and that kind of they're all happening kind of simultaneously and, and sometimes they cross over with each other. And, you know, to some degree our imagination, you know, to put things and things can be brought to life. It can be made real. And, you know, if you have a concept in your head, uh, probably within the next 10 years it'll happen. You'll be able to, maybe 20 years, but you'll be able to visualize a complex geometric solid directly communicate it through your brain waves to some other object and then it can be printed into a 3D life through a 3D printer or something like that. Right now there's like a piece in between that's like a design software where you have to go and move around a mouse and draw the thing and whatever else and, and make the face. But you know that layer is becoming more and more seamless and, and quicker to be able to go. And to me that expresses the, the real potential of the metaverse is kind of basically making that transition as thin as possible. And I think that's kind of what I'm most excited about as well. And it goes back to other types of topics too, like you know mathematics and music and kind of the things that kind of exist and persist and provide value to human society you know, on an ongoing basis that we can even say are like eternal in some way. You know, some of these you know, ratios that we find over and over again in nature mm. and in our own sort of musical things that we, you know, more or less consistently find beautiful and then how do we kind of negotiate that and kind of you know continue to like custody that even in this sort of sometimes like snow crash leaning world where things feel like these societies feel like they're on the verge of kind of falling apart or you know going in a bunch of like you know crazy directions looking back technology in 2021 hasn't been defined by any single big tech company instead something wider has been on the horizon really all year It's called Web3, and it's powering virtual assets such as non-fungible tokens, as well as the growing popularity of play-to-earn gaming. Increasingly, Web3 technologies are converging into a much bigger idea. Metaverse communities of potentially billions of users playing, trading, and having fun online. What few people realize is the extent to which Ethereum and blockchain-based infrastructure 
is powering this transition and the potential of these new worlds. Joel Dietz has worked on Ethereum from the very beginning, during a time when even giant incubators like the famous Y Combinator appeared to have trouble understanding what a smart contract was. An MIT Connection Science Fellow, Joel is described by MIT as a serial entrepreneur and intellectual historian who helped found a number of initiatives in the cryptocurrency space, including Ethereum, Metamask, the first smart contract educational channel, and the first academic work on crypto economics. Metamask, of course, will be familiar to anyone who's purchased ETH or activated an account on Decentraland, an NFT multiverse worth between 800 million to 1.4 billion US dollars as of September this year. Joel describes the metaverse as a bridge into the unseen. His previous project was called Vapor, back when he wasn't working on projects with names like Ether, Ciphers, or referencing medieval alchemy. So this episode is a high-level introduction to the past and the future of Web3. Because Joel is based here in Dubai, it also gives a sense of how rapidly the UAE tech scene is evolving and changing, but also what the challenges ahead might be. How can the UAE level up and lean in to the virtual markets of tomorrow? And when will the best poets, and not just the best coders, come here to play? Today we're talking to Joel Dietz, a starting founder of Metamask. Joel, thanks so much for joining us today. I know things are busy with Jitex, but um, just quickly about you. So what is Metamask? How did you get into this world? And uh, why are you here in Dubai right now? Well, um, I saw that cryptocurrency was going to be used and, and decentralized applications in the browser. And I had built the first digital currency wallet um, in a browser uh, a couple years before MetaMask, actually. And so when the project got going in the early Ethereum days, it was kind of an intuitive thing for me that people would want to use the web browser to interact with this whole new world. Mm. And uh, recently, partially for regulatory reasons, partially just to see what was going on, I, I came by Dubai and had a really good experience early on with sort of Art Dubai and some of the growing kind of arts community here. And it led me to stay and explore what other options exist. Yeah, it's interesting you are in, you know about the art community here, and I guess we'll get, that into, we'll get into that later. But to begin with, going back into the history of MetaMasks, so you said even before... MetaMask, which many of our listeners will know and use daily, you were already looking at a web-based application. How did? Uh, why did you get interested in that? Wh- why did you think that was an obvious thing that you should get involved in and build? And how did? Why did you get there first? Well, it was a combination of things. One is that, in some ways, temperamentally, I like to bridge different worlds, and I've always appreciated good user experience and, you know, apps and, you know, I'm an Apple product user among other things. And many of the people who were building these blockchain protocols were a little bit on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, very good at building sort of protocol design. And I appreciated what they did, but the user experience of the clients that were being built in sort of the 2014 era, let's say, were relatively far from what you would expect to be able to use. And, uh, 
it just seemed obvious to me that people would want to be able to interact in the browser and that leveraging the community and JavaScript and all the different things that people are using was kind of the right place to go for, you know, let's say mass market consumption. Mm. So what was it like before MetaMask? What were the key problems MetaMask was trying to solve? Um, or how would you, what were the difficulties of um, using wallets before this application started being you know, deployed on uh, platforms like Decentraland and many others? Well, there really was nothing you know, before MetaMask. I mean, there were three or four different downloadable clients that were produced, basically sponsored by the Ethereum Foundation and uh, were being built kind of by sort of s mostly by salaried employees, although some of them had started as kind of uh, contributors and there was idea building kind of in parallel. But there was relatively little happening in the kind of JavaScript world. And uh, I had built the Ethereum meetups and communities in Silicon Valley and gotten to know people. In fact, I was basically running the Ethereum sort of Silicon Valley office at the time, which was the only office Ethereum ever had in California. And had the desire, you know, to kind of basically see and seed startups and projects out of that community. It was still very early, and there weren't the VC community actually hadn't gotten interested in, in Ethereum yet. Uh, so we actually applied to Y Combinator with the thing, and they said, "What are smart contracts? We don't really know. Like, why you any, would anyone use this?" Um, which was a bit surprising because I thought they would understand a little bit at that point. Uh, but you know, even then, you know, after a year or two after Ethereum had launched or really were, or started the project, there still was relatively little appreciation for what it could do. Yeah, I think a discussion on Web three. Um, we haven't actually talked about that much on the UAE Tech podcast, which is it's pretty bad. But that's definitely something we can go into later. So I wanted to go on a quick tangent to a little bit about you. Um, where did you grow up? How did you get into this world? What really interested about about you in the first place you mentioned you're in silicon valley uh, you know where did you study how did how did you kind of move into this world because as you said if it wasn't even something like why combinator was aware of it's clear that not everyone even in, at, at the high levels of the u.s technology scene was aware of just what kind of changes were taking place in some of these decentralized um, technologies and you know smart contracts and things like that so kind of just your background, and you also mentioned China at some point. Um, so yeah, how did you get into all of this? Yeah, my official biography at sort of MIT, where I'm a connection science fellow, uh, says I'm a sort of intellectual historian, <laughs> uh, which is kind of true. You know, I, I really enjoy history and sort of learning about the long tail of sort of historical norms and how history can repeat itself and the different ways in which societies evolve and when I first heard about Bitcoin, I wanted to get a historical approach to what would happen around uh, digital currencies, and I read, you know, quite a lot of books. Uh, I was I kind of have a habit every once in a while of going and living as a hermit, uh, sort of by myself, and just reading a lot of books uh, about different topics that interest me, and usually picking one specific vertical to go deep in. So I wanted to learn about the history of financial markets and how they got the way they are today. And I, I basically concluded that it was a lot similar to when stock markets were first created and everyone was creating these new tokens <laughs> called stock certificates that were not really backed by any value. You know, the French government was selling like the Mississippi company. Like, oh, go to Mississippi. It's great. It's actually like a you know, swamp. People were dying. And then 
they didn't even let people publish the letters that were coming back to to Paris because no, the stock was already worth so much, you know, like, don't let them know what's really going on, uh, like this kind of thing. So I kind of thought that this whole industry and technology was kind of moving in a very similar direction um, and that there were a lot more like, you know, equity certificates or something on some sort of, you know, almost utopian or ideological idea, kind of like buying a cinema ticket into someone else's like version of utopia. Um, usually with a very heavy like libertarian focus um, mm -hmm. in the early ones, but you know there's been a bunch of things kind of that have evolved since then. Um, so my real first approach to it was actually a, a kind of a m maybe a better historian or or analyst of larger trends than I am an entrepreneur um, because I'm I'm interested in a lot of these other sort of topics. Um, but the it kind of led me to you know interesting perspective as far as really getting very very early involved in certain trends and kind of being able to identify what were some of the future trends and and some of that is also just for my lifelong love of science fiction where it feels like once you really immerse yourself in like a sci-fi world then like things start popping and it just kind of makes more sense to you I guess what what's coming next or what the possibilities are at least which you know is a big topic in the metaverse right now because there's so many like interesting brain and kind of enhancing technologies that are existing right now. Yeah, so y you just mentioned the metaverse, um, and I think that's where we first met. Um, I was doing some some research on that 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 at the time, based based out of Dubai, um, was in its very very early stages, and it was it was difficult getting people on board with that. But then, of course, now, a few months later, at Jitex and and you know pretty much everywhere, everyone's talking about it. I I've just started reading Snow Crash, and it, a it's hilarious. I don't know if you've read it. But the opening chapter is just absolutely bri brilliant. It's about a pizza delivery guy who's dressed as a ninja. And <laughs> he ends up crashing in someone's empty swimming pool. And then the mafia come to get him. So he goes and hides in the metaverse. That sounds ridiculous. I probably, the author would probably be very angry with me. But I definitely suggest everyone reads it. It's, it's, it's eye-opening. And there's a lot of uh, just the semantics of it. Um, a very uh, this was written in 1993 so a lot of words like metaverse or many of the ideas like AR glasses first appear in this book um, but it is interesting what you say about sci-fi um, and connecting that back to you again so I know you're at the MIT lab now you're p writing something on the metaverse for them um, so you are actually writing you are actually still researching and then you've also got this this you know the R&D side the metaverse um, sorry the the MetaMask side. So obviously a lot of people using Meta Meta MetaMask are using it on, you know, um, metaverse worlds, decentralized worlds, um, you know, play-to-earn worlds. So is that kind of driving a lot of adoption for MetaMask? And also why are you interested in this space now? Why are you interested in that kind of gaming, blockchain, metaverse community? Is it purely business or is it does it go beyond that? Well, it's interesting because uh, multiple things. So, you know, many of the early Ethereum people were very into science fiction, um, and I think we were all aware of Snow Crash and kind of the political implications. Seeing, you know, kind of this historical thing. There's sort of a, you know, dystopian version and a utopian version um, uh, of these things. And for instance, many of us read Daniel Suarez. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, like Damon and things about, you know, autonomous drone networks and how these all things can evolve or Skynet or you know different things and and it was it was a very hot topic in that world um, at that time 
so I think it was actually one of the things that allowed people to bond very quickly in the you know early Ethereum community is also a feeling that you know from a larger political and ideological standpoint that just people in general and particularly smart tech people just didn't believe in any of the standard ideologies that you know are recycled that people are trying to get you to buy into their you know thing but it's like this doesn't the system doesn't really seem to be working that well mm. not even the people at the top of the food chain clearly aren't willing to like go and die in some for their country or whatever else it is they're clearly just you know skimming off the top in various ways and so you know what is really the future look looking like and i think the kind of ethereum community for a while at least really held a kind of strong vision of like we can build a sort of interesting common future together that had a utopian elements to it and in fact i recommended the first journalist to cover ethereum uh, whose name is nathan schneider who's now written quite a lot about it um, and his first piece was in Al Jazeera, and it was basically about building utopias. Um, so Code Your Own Utopia was the name of the article. And I think it kind of captured a lot of the draw in the very early um, Ethereum community, and partially also why maybe some of the VCs um, missed out on it because they weren't necessarily interested in that part. They were interested in let's make a bunch of money quickly or whatever. Um, so, and, and that kind of led in, actually, the first name for MetaMask was called Vapor um, because, and this was kind of, both Vitalik's sense of humor and the kind of Ethereum community this at the same time because it was uh, whimsical and you know Ethereum it's actually partially kind of named after some like in-game assets in like World of Warcraft and it's just like m you know these ether e ether yeah exactly ether, right. it's a, it's also kind of alchemical concept yeah. of air you know and the kind of uh, energy behind air and so the other client at the time was called Mist um, and then the uh, JavaScript client which is basically you know what I started was called Vapor. So there was kind of this idea basically of taking things that are ethereal and kind of densifying them and bringing them into appreciation um, of, of people and that the ether itself was kind of like the, um, not to use like a bioelectricity or kind of spiritual sense necessarily, but it had something to do with like the kind of gassy vapor that kind of powers things and brings them to life and kind of animates them. So it's kind of like a very interesting, you know, concept. I mean, obviously it's grounded in material science because, you know, we have to have air to breathe and, and, all, and gas is a critical in ingredient as well. Um, but it's like alchemy. It is it's a little like bit, yeah, alchemy. kind of like medieval alchemy. Kind but in of mixed code. Into it, in code, yeah. So I, I always appreciated those things. In fact, I found the original name uh, that Vitalik gave it very funny. Um, so I kept the vapor thing and, and then eventually became, you know, MetaMask. But I think it kind of expresses a very similar concept in the sense that it is a gateway into the metaverse. And the metaverse, in my definition, I use something that's a little bit di different, um, uh, maybe because I'm a little bit of a veteran of these things and I built several AR and VR applications that were not connected to Ethereum or digital assets and, and kind of demoed in different kind of categories including angel investing in that world. And what I think of it is in some ways a bridge into the unseen world and that there's multiple tracks and you know one of them is the digital asset side, but another one is the kind of AR, VR kind of hardware, how do we experience these things side. And another one is the kind of brain chemistry, you know, different kind of like neurochemistry related research, et cetera, kind of things that we can use to alter our state of consciousness. Um, and that kind of they're all happening kind of simultaneously and, and sometimes they cross over with each other. And, you know, to some degree our imagination, you know, to put things and things can be brought to life. It can be made real 
and you know if you have a concept in your head that probably within the next 10 years will happen you'll be able to maybe 20 years but you'll be able to visualize a complex geometric solid directly communicate it through your brain waves to some other object and then it can be printed into a 3d life through a 3d printer or something like that Right now, there's like a piece in between that's like a design software where you have to go and move around a mouse and draw the thing and whatever else and, and make the face. But, you know, that layer is becoming more and more seamless and, and quicker to be able to go. And to me, that expresses the, the real potential of the metaverse is kind of basically making that transition as thin as possible. And I think that's kind of what I'm most excited about as well. And it goes back to other types of topics too, like you know mathematics and music and kind of the things that kind of exist and persist and provide value to human society, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis that we can even say are like eternal in some way. You know, some of these you know ratios that we find over and over again in nature, mm. and in our own sort of musical things that we you know more or less consistently find beautiful. And then how do we kind of negotiate that and kind of, you know, continue to like custody that even in this sort of sometimes like snow crash leaning world where things feel like these societies feel like they're on the verge of kind of falling apart or, you know, going in a bunch of like, you know, crazy directions. So there's a lot there. Um, there's, there's several points there. Um, but I think the best point at which to, to enter this might be to talk about what's been happening in Dubai and then link it to some of these ideas around the metaverse here and, and globally. So during COVID-19, there have been so many people coming here that are working in crypto, that are working in blockchain, um, that are uh, critics of at least one um, element of the establishment, which is often the financial system. And they also have this kind of um, culture of, of playfulness, of enjoying online games, of, of looking forward to, to, to building new systems and, and kind of frustration with how things were built before. And a lot of these individuals, a lot of these entrepreneurs, some of whom have been incredibly successful and have built all sorts of things, uh, are starting to see that there's a convergence happening and that you're having things like uh, MetaMask wallets and, and crypto coins and play-to-earn gaming all these various technologies converging on this idea of a metaverse, a, a place you can enter, you can go to play, you can go to maybe sell things, and you know you can go to entertain, you can be Travis Scott playing in Fortnite, although Fortnite is still, to some extent, a video game, or you can be you know, uploading your NFT art and selling that in cyberspace. So I think for some of the people listening, if they're thinking, okay, this is a bit abstract, what do they mean by the metaverse? How do I visualize it? Is this Ready Player One? Is this stuff I've uh, read in literature or seen on TV? I think some of the first early signs of it are work that Joel, Joel is doing with things like MetaMask, but also if you look at the NFT art um, industry here in Dubai, with people really trading and selling assets which are purely virtual, purely digital. And what we're really talking about is that's just one very small component of these future online worlds be you entering them on your phone or through a VR headset, through AR glasses or through many other inputs. So that's a kind of very, very basic, you know, description of what we're talking about. But I think what Joel's getting into in is that the implications of this go far beyond the economy. You know, they can change our financial systems, they could change our politics, they can change how people live their lives. Um, 
but when you when you start building for these kinds of things, Joel, and when you start thinking about them, are you really thinking about all these you know macro ideas and, and kind of the philosophy and and the almost intellectual background of it, or are you you figuring out okay what is the smallest problem I can solve and build, and and once I've done that, where do I go next? Kind of what is your process for building out things like MetaMask? I would say I have two hats. You know, one is definitely the macro historical, um, you know, long view on the subject and. And kind of also looking at legacy, like I'm one of my favorite things with these like Roman historians or something like that. Like I feel like sometimes it's really people have a historical mindset that kind of have the last laugh, so to speak, because there's so many people running in to like grab bags of money and they're everywhere and, you know, it can't be avoided, especially in the crypto space. But, you know, there's going to be... That's very true. Something distinguishes you, actually. I've been on so many Discord chats and I have a very uh, good friend here in government who actually started quite a high-level Discord group for for well-known crypto guys. And um, it was a real opportunity to, for people to get involved and talk about, you know, smart contracts, DAOs, changing governance and, and building metaverse um, systems of, of democracy and voting and experimenting with new ways of, of organization. And everyone in the group just kept asking about trading. And it, it's legitimate, you know, it's interesting, but this wasn't the place. It's very hard to find people who, who wanted to talk about those things on the site, you know, of course, making money is, is legitimate but it's actually quite hard to, to find people who can talk about the governance or the historical aspects of some of these these transitions that we're seeing yeah and I, I guess I you know tend you know temperamentally in that direction and I also uh, don't find my personal value to be defined particularly by the amount of assets I have relative to other people I have a lot of other things that I'm really interested in and Many of my favorite figures in history are, you know, for example, famous poets. Like I love like William Wordsworth or something like that. And I find much more appreciation of like leaving some poem behind that other people read, you know, in a hundred years than pretty much anything else. So that's... <laughs> well, that's <laughs> good for the metaverse, isn't it? I mean, that's a whole... Because if we're talking about... We're not just talking about, you know, cool tech. We're talking about kind of a civilizational cultural space, right? Where... It will will the metaverse have history? Will it have art? Uh, what what things will it, it will it build? What will it be be the human elements of it? Um, I think it's more than social media. I know, you know, Zuckerberg is talking about it as as a kind of a three D extension of social media, where you can kind of do the stuff you're already doing, play the games you're already playing, but it's more immersive. It's more real. It's in three D, and you can, you know, you can look around. You, you seem to be describing something. Um, a lot more than that. It looks like you're looking backwards as well as looking forwards. Yeah, and, you know, I'm looking at the philosophy of life, you know, in general and how we understand things that are unseen, right? And there's many different categories of those things, whether it's, you know, pheromones or sense or genetics or, you know, a lot of other things that maybe we process at some sort of subconscious level but that are not always actively in our consciousness as well as just a, you know, different data streams. Like if I could be looking at you right now and have, you know, information about, you know, your, let's say, LinkedIn profile or work history or other things like that, it would potentially be an interesting add-on to kind of our, like, you know, normal visual kind of experience. So, you know, th there's a lot of different things. But the thing I was going to say is, you know, in addition to the kind of macro-historical thing, I'm a, I'm a game designer historically, and so I... 
I actually have a kind of philosophical view of fun too. It goes back to this um, Dutch historian Johan Huizinga, uh, basically about how um, optimizing for jousting and fun was kind of one of the like most important developmental things that happened in the Middle Ages or something, because it allowed people to have let's say outlets for their violent tendencies, but not have them go into war. And it was actually really a, a huge societal kind of bonding kind of element to it. Um, and just in general, there's things that people find in kind of free market environments that are like all right, you know, as far as like fun goes. But I think that the, the appeal of trading, you know, even if it exists for many people, does not exist at the kind of fundamental for the whole population. Um, and the time that you can spend it also can detract from the time that you spend on things like appreciating either, you know, let's say legitimate art, artistic endeavors or, um, you know, understanding history or <laughs> all these other things. So, but, but play does, you know, everyone kind of understands play. Yeah, and play is very universal and it's, I mean, allows, I think, to create kind of a be beautiful thing, but it is also iterative in the sense that you know, fine-tuning an experience of play and kind of fun for individuals and what they really, like, find enjoyable is actually quite of a, a, a challenging thing and, and requires, like, a, a lot of detail and nuance to it. So um, I, similar to, like, social network curation and running events and things like that, which is also a bit of a hobby of mine, it's, like, getting the that experience to be felt. So it's kind of like another category where I hope I leave a legacy is sort of in the... I mean, have, have you heard of this old idea of the, the Renaissance man? Um, it's probably sexist now, but, but, but the idea was to be a fully formed human, right? Yeah. You had to be, it was kind of a almost medieval, but or po just post-medieval idea. Mm -hmm. It was played a role with the Enlightenment and all sorts, but the idea was a uh, soldier, artist, lover. And of course, soldier, you had, you know, action, uh, physical um, excellence, um, jousting, tennis in, in my country, other sports, artist. So, you know, be completely acceptable to play a musical instrument, write a poem, be a painter. You had to do one of those things. Lover, we can skip that one, that's obvious. But, and that was what a rounded individual was. And, if, you know, of course it, it helped if you, you know, whatever, had assets and all this sorts of stuff. But that was as important. Um, and you couldn't really be that. That was almost how you get respect in society. Um, and I don't know. I think you know maybe with with the advent of hypercapitalism, where you know there's there's one metric and that metric is everything, we kind of lost sense of how important play is. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, many people have, but I think our our children, interestingly enough, have not. And you know, we find this in even you know the Zuckerberg agenda to whatever, take over the world and whatever he's, you know, cooking up next, you know, in his thing, that regardless, you know, the younger generation doesn't want to use Facebook, you know. They don't want to use Instagram anymore, and, you know, he's going to probably try to buy up the next thing that's like, you know, Instagram to capture that, you know, younger demographic. But I think when children are not programmed in an opposite direction and, you know, sucked into some, you know, giant attention sucking machine <laughs> um, they naturally gravitate towards things that are playful and fun and that's actually maybe the hope of the world <laughs> so yeah okay so on that note right can we can you kind of introduce some of the technical aspects of this so some of the decentralized technology that powers metamask worlds like 
Decentraland, why it's decentralized blockchain-based um, gaming where people can play to earn, uh, why are websites like Roblox, why, why do you think these are doing so well in terms of kind of human engagement, but also in terms of how they're technically built? Well, so Web3 is kind of the vision of the early Ethereum community, and it was really to build a new internet and uh, an alternative infrastructure um, that would allow this stuff to be built. And uh, the Ethereum network and smart contracts was really just part of that vision. It's the one that maybe works the best out of the things that had been attempted and other things have you know, had their own timeline associated with them. But there has been you know, kind of interesting kind of layers to it, but one of them you know, does come to the kind of the core infrastructure of sort of the internet and how kind of routing exists and how messages can be passed um, to be sure, you know, that a uh, message has like passed and uh, from even the kind of lowest level of the circuitry in your computer. And, and most of the Ethereum people were not hardware people, um, to be frank. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while you meet people who were and you realize that, you know, not really that much has changed since these ideas were first come up with in the 70s and 80s and we're basically still building on the exact same model of circuit board and kind of processing unit and um, and that even some of these things have been kind of deliberately designed to be insecure or, or, or at least they were designed in such a way that many people had a strong incentive to make them sort of less secure or have like backdoors in these things over time and almost no one has really gone back to the ground floor and really started building them up to be secure from the bottom up. And I would say, unfortunately, you know, some of the Ethereum and people, even though maybe they made the most progress in that area, are not sufficiently knowledgeable about how that stuff works to really lead something like that. And then since the world has gone so much in a financial application layer, then people sometimes forget some of the layers that are kind of beneath it and kind of how they need to evolve. So I don't know if that's a full answer, but I think there's there's really not that much good work out there being done on this particular topic at the moment. Um, I'm kind of surprised because I, I know a lot of the leading people in the crypto economic space. That's sort of the topic of the book that I'm working on right now for MIT Press. Um, and it just seems like every once in a while people get very excited about like the same topics and then completely neglect other ones. And so that's partially why I like to keep this circle focused to say like, okay, well maybe these other topics are important and you know, smart people will come around and think about them or progressive governments will come around and you know, build some infrastructure around them or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, it does seem there's trends and then sometimes during those trends that everyone is, is talking about other really important stuff gets missed. Um, I want to quickly talk about nft up before we do that just based on your last answer so for, for you know business in individuals who are listening what is what do you think in in the metaverse is the difference between kind of big big tech companies that have serious assets to move into some of these metaverse systems in the future be it hardware inputs like a you know vr headset or massive audiences you know almost 2.85 billion users for facebook or or other companies, they have one sort of model of building out these worlds. And then you have kind of the Ethereum, the decentralized community who are also building out these worlds. I'm not suggesting the two are mutually exclusive, but it does seem to be 
at least two schools. Um, how do you think, I mean, what are the pros and cons of that? And how do you think those schools will cooperate or not cooperate going into the future? What does this mean for the future of those who are building the metaverse? Yeah, it's a big challenge. And, you know, I, I talked earlier about how I sort of led the charge into the kind of web browser. Um, but I, even when I was doing that, I saw it as a sort of stopgap measure. Like I, I thought that what was really needed was, you know, clients that gave the full window into this sort of whole new internet and that it needed to be secure and, you know, things of that nature. And that really that progress had been, I think it's been slowed down in some ways by the, you know, consumer adoption. I mean, not that it's bad and it's, it's actually great, but there's kind of a kind of bridging function that needs to happen sort of from the bottom up that does kind of take into account these things. And, you know, every day you hear about, you know, some kind of rug pull or hack that happened in kind of MetaMask universe. And it's partially because a lot of these things were just not really designed, you know, for those things. And, and you know, not everyone's going to build hardware, but the, you know, hardware wallets and kind of security infrastructure is a kind of critical component to the whole um, ecosystem and doing it well. And, I don't, you know, I don't really know the best way to kind of start from, I don't think we really can start from scratch. You know, there's so much building happening in different things. And um, I'm a kind of a weird situation where I'm, you know, proud of MetaMask as reaching a certain, you know, set of user adoption. But I also think when I've used it and, you know, for instance, you're about to talk about NFTs, but I used to try to buy NFTs. I'm kind of dissatisfied at the same time at the overall user interaction and flow and kind of timeout issues that can happen and certain things still feel kind of clunky to me. Um, and I kind of makes me, you know, frustrated and, and not super proud about that because I thought, you know, in the beginning when you're kind of building from the ground up, you want to build an experience that is better than whatever preceded it. And I think in some ways the blockchain space has allowed a lot of innovation, but because there's not a lot of quality filtering and because the people haven't really, aren't necessarily still that ingrained into, like I'm saying, like the fun elements, like being, building games or building for younger generation, that a lot of the times that things just kind of evolve in a little bit of a clunky direction that, that is sort of avoid or could be avoidable. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see, you know, a younger generation get involved of kind of working with some different teams, you know, uh, in India right now and uh, like, very excited about seeing, you know, what happens when we get a whole sort of new, fresh generation kind of looking at these things, um, and, and particularly looking at the kind of scale factor, because in some of these, like, play-to-earn gaming world and things like that, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, you know, playing these games at kind of one time, and, you know, it needs to be approachable to them and manageable and all of that. Yeah, that does seem to be the next step. So I missed your panel today on NFT art. And you mentioned you were talking a bit about, you know, how do you decide what to invest in? How do you see this market working? Can you kind of briefly summarize what, what you were talking about today? Because I know a lot of people are interested in NFT art. It's a kind of case study as to how some of these systems and, or virtual markets might operate in the future. So kind of what do you think about this space right now? Yeah, Jitex thankfully gave me a two-hour slot to talk about NFTs and statistics, so I put every kind of statistic that you could possibly want in there. Um, and there were some pretty big takeaways, but one is definitely the growth in the gaming space and how it's growing really mm -hmm. rapidly right now. And also, you know, the kind of 
relative sort of market dominance of Ethereum and the kind of emergence of like sort of blue chip kind of categories around some of these things um, and like relatively stable flows and also just how new the industry is. Um, I think it was still a little bit under um, 8,000 sales per day of NFTs, which relative to other industries, I mean, is infinitesimal, you know, as far as the actual, you know, sale volume of things. And maybe it's fine for like a fine art market or something like that. But, you know, once you start really doing other types of collectibles, like say we're just even something like stamps or baseball cards or other things like that, you would really need to, it really needs to support a much, much higher volume. Right. I mean, that is interesting on volume, but on the other side, you were talking about history, and I've been uh, reading some of the history of economics, and I'm not uh, an economist. I do, I've dabbled in it uh, a little bit at university, um, I have a basic understanding of it, but I was trying to understand the difference between economic value and price. Very basic concept, because I was looking at what people were buying on these art markets, as, as you know, I used to be an art, uh, an art dealer, physical art in the Middle East. And essentially, Joel, they're, they're paying thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars for something that is not physical. It's, it's a virtual uh, representation. It's on the computer screen. And, you know, sometimes it's physical, but most of the time it's just registered to them on the blockchain. And they can be paying thousands of dollars for that. Now, let's say it's only, you know, half of those 8,000 users is 4,000 people a day, even if it was 2,500 people. Every single day, you've got people spending thousands of dollars on a completely virtual commodity and possibly asset class. And I, th I kind of find it hilarious that you're like, you know, there's no scale. What are they doing? It needs to be much bigger. But don't you think that is a kind of a small revolution? Um, and we're not entirely sure what that means either going forwards. Well, yeah, and on the same token, you know, these metaverses we're talking about have gone from, you know, nothing a couple of years ago to having like a billion dollars of land in Decentraland. You right. Know? I mean, that's very significant price appreciation, very significant development opportunities, very, you know, significant tech infrastructure being built around some of these things and kind of huge opportunities like this project that we just sort of announced internally today called the Meta Metaverse, I think is potentially going to become the leading platform for people who want to build their own metaverse or corporates who want to adopt the metaverse or things of that nature. And it's, I think, in, and I think a lot of other sophisticated investors I've been talking about would agree that every corporation, so at least the significant ones that have consumer brands, are going to want to have their own metaverse in a couple of years. And so how are we going to accommodate that? Like, what are we going to be looking to? And it's, it's fascinating. I think we just got an exclusive on that metaverse. Metaverse drop. But... Okay, two questions to, to kind of end uh, the discussion today. Um, the first one is, how do you find um, the scene out here? So, you know, the great thing about Alba Weber Business is, you know, we have an international, um, very sophisticated audience who are aware of the pros and cons of Dubai, probably been in and out of the GCC a lot, possibly even run teams out of here. So, so they have a pretty good understanding of how things work. Um, you know, you, you've been here in and out for at least a couple of months. What are the things that you really like and what are the things that you would like to see improve or develop or change? Yeah, I was really fortunate to be, you know, g giving thanks to the rulers here and, you know, the World Trade Center and everyone for putting me on stage to really announce the sort of, you know, new golden visa program for the 100,000 engineers 
And, you know, while we were in the audience at the new developer stage that was basically there for the data economy things, I, you know, was moderating it for, you know, five hours or something. But the thing that I, I said, and we said, well, how, how many of you are engineers? And maybe 15, 20 people, you know, raised their hand. So it's kind of this interesting thing where there's very, very few number of engineers, even at a kind of conference that has a significant tech component to, but that the local government has shown a track record of really setting ambitious agendas and then kind of executing on them and, you know, bringing in the right people and kind of deploying the right resources in a way that, you know, other nation states or whatever don't necessarily seem to be able to do. Um, so I think it's kind of an interesting thing because I think that local population does not exist today. There's basically no local development, there's no one building metaverses here, you know, people who are basically have teams that are based in other places. But if, you know, it is taken seriously by local government, they can bring in people like myself, and then we can kind of build in the core infrastructure that you need to be able to do that. And, you know, I, I ran it, you know, by my friends already, and some of them said, yeah, we know people who built entire technical university and high school systems from scratch and trade, you know, 50, 100,000 sort of engineers from the schooling system, and we can build that infrastructure at scale if, you know, there is a kind of government mandate or people are really willing to kind of put in the right resources in play. So uh, that, that excites me. I mean, and I think I'm used to being in a very early stage of development of different things. And so I would much rather be part of something that is really exciting and large at an early stage than, you know, step in, mi you know, mid-tier and, you know, whatever, ride the, the wave all the way to the crest all the way to the top. Yeah, and I think the Middle East is great for that, particularly Dubai. And I think, you know, the, the role of, of the public sector in, in the tech industry is a major theme in this podcast. On that note, to kind of finish up today, honing back in on the metaverse, um, you know, we were on a panel at the Capital Club where we were, we were looking at the viability of the metaverse for Dubai and the UAE. Um, the UAE has a very ambitious kind of digital transformation plan that is across government, uh, very much in Dubai, but across the whole country. And part of the core strategy um, for UAE, you know, as, as a country is to upgrade and, and transform the economy towards digitalization as quickly and substantively as possible. And the argument we, we were really making uh, or probing during that discussion was that the metaverse will be a significant aspect of the global digital economy going forwards, that that's going to happen. And there could be a near-term opportunity or an early-stage opportunity for the UAE to move into that space aggressively and confidently. Um, what do you think might be some initial discussions or quick next steps that can happen? I know, you know that there's been discussions on the idea of, uh, of an incubator or on kind of um, due diligence research, but, but what would be some next steps for the UAE to kind of start probing and moving into this space, not just for the private sector, but for government and public officials to, to, to support this as well? Yeah, I actually put together a working paper um, a couple months ago on um, making Dubai the global crypto hub, um, and it included several suggestions that were in this category. It was partially born out of a collaboration with the Capital Club here as well. And some of it definitely is, um, I would say tweaking the law, but kind of allowing some 
areas to kind of become a little more defined um, because it's partially just engineering culture. There's a lot of people who like building things and they're used to a certain type of infrastructure and, and things like that. Like even within the World Trade Center, you know, we're kind of building some spaces out that are kind of more engineering friendly. And I said, you know, you need to have bean bags. You need to have like <laughs> places where people can lounge. Maybe you need to be a console so people can, you know, hang out in the That's metaverse. That's crazy because I always think Dubai is great. That's one thing Dubai does great, building cool spaces. Yeah. But, but yeah, it definitely helps. Yeah, no, and I, I would say that is one of the absolute, you know, things is that the people here in this region are incredible hosts and they're really good at kind of bringing and kind of facilitating that sort of thing. Um, and maybe it just needs to be done sort of at a, at a scale, you know, like a, there was a big e-gaming conference right. here recently. Yeah. There hasn't been a really big, you know, metaverse gaming, whatever metaverse sort of conference yet. Um, and kind of bring in all the sort of leading, you know, minds and stuff like that to really see that. And and similar to what we're, we're talking about earlier, there's also not a lot of really good stuff being done on how these, the macro implications of some of these new technological systems, including cryptocurrency. So, you know, I went back to the MIT community recently and, and I said, you know, does anyone have a rubric that they're using to measure the social impact and good, you know, in this world. And it's, uh, and this is within the, well, mo you know, maybe the most sophisticated academic community in the world working on these topics. And it's kind of similarly like a neglected topic. Like, you know, we're working on the game theory, we're working on applied economics, but we forgot to talk about whether or not there's an aggregate positive social impact to some of these things um, and how you would measure it. So. I think there's a huge opportunity to, to say we're going to be at the forefront of some of these new research trends around, you know, how does the metaverse impact the rest of the world um, as it happens and, and get some of the leading researchers to work on things and, you know, sponsored research and also bringing things like one of the things that I talked with from some of my friends at the Dubai Future Foundation was a kind of like MacArthur style program, you know, where you bring in like leading scholars in the world, you say, here, you have one year to come up with your best thoughts on, you know, how the world is going to be impacted by these technologies and what the plan to build the brightest, you know, future society framework would be. And then, you know, get kind of like the intellectual culture of having like the best of the best because um, it's, it's a community effort, you know, and network. And if you don't have enough keen minds and they together, then they can't sharpen each other. And, you know, someone like myself who's used to being around a lot of the leading savants in the world around protocol design, for example, like it's actually very hard to be intellectually engaged here in Dubai because those people typically do not come to the more consumer conferences. They, they like to be around a similar community. And so you kind of have to make a significant spearheading of effort to get those people involved. And basically you need to take them seriously and they need to take you seriously. And, and Dubai has some really great features to leverage in, in things that it's done successfully in the past that could be applied here. But as of right now, it does feel like a little bit of a gap. That, that yeah, I think I think there are a lot of individuals who are aware of that. Um, there needs to be a lot of development in R&D, and there needs to be a lot of development in the discussions that kind of incubate R&D um, at the you know abstract and intellectual end. A in a way, it, I mean, Everyone understands now here the role crypto and decentralized finance is playing in the economy and in the world, but that took a lot of time. And it feels like in the metaverse that will come too, and it could be five years away. But uh, 
I think a, a way of accelerating that and making that work well is where you connect the right individuals together, but you also involve the public sector and government at those conferences. So you don't just have, you know, your friends from um, European cities or, or Ivy League fly in and go to that conference. You have people from Digital Dubai or from, you know, key institutions, Future Foundation, coming, actually taking time sometimes to, to read, a, you know, a boring paper but it might have some really key insights where you can think, hey, we can do that relatively easy here. You know, we've already got these three things. All we need is a little tweak here, and Dubai can move into esports, or, you know, Dubai can move into um, software development, or, oh, you know, we have this little gaming lab here. What if we had that, you know, track move into kind of connect them with some of the cryptocurrencies guys? So that does feel like it needs work, but it's, it's starting to happen. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's one thing the UAE Tech Podcast is also trying to do. We are for the business community, but there's a sense of if we can also have those discussions around the edges, then the economy as a whole will grow and we won't just be following, you know, other jurisdictions. Yeah, and I think that's why part of the reason I'm here, you know, is that I like to be the best at everything, you know, <laughs> and Dubai sort of also likes to be the best. I like world records. I like to... Sometimes, I wouldn't say I've been the, the biggest everything, but, you know, I was a competitive programmer. I won a lot of prizes and um, whatever was the, the top coder for a while on the company that acquired top coder. So I was sort of by virtue in some ways the, the top coder in the world in some, in some fashion and even fitness world records. I've gotten kind of close to a couple of fitness world records. So it's a, it's a fun kind of rubric to be in. At least for me, it feels like it causes me to push myself to kind of new limits and and I would really love to see, you know, a greater framework that kind of takes, you know, some of this broader technical community in the world, which, you know, frankly is is very competitive and likes these kind of things themselves, you know, but it doesn't, in some ways it doesn't really have a global hub either. And uh, America and Silicon Valley has been that, you know, in many ways, and there are many benefits to the way that's done, but it's, it's missing a few things right now. And, you know, one of them is, uh, visa issues for people coming to the U.S., you know, want to be there. <laughs> Cost of living super high, and, you know, the quality of living in various respects has kind of declined over time. So I think, you know, there's a pretty open opportunity, really, for somewhere, and I personally am biased in hoping that it will be Dubai, you know, because I'm here and I, I want to have more world records. But, um, <laughs> you know. Well, well Joel, thanks so much for your time today. I think that was... Um, you know, th there's there's a lot of um, follow-up on that conversation. There's a lot of things we, we delved into. And, um, yeah, let's see how these conversations continue over the next six months or so. But thanks again for your time today, Joel. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Albuaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Albuaba Business, syndication distribution on Albuaba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Albuaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team. <laughs>